Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. November is National Scoliosis Month. What exactly is this condition and does it have to be treated? Are there some new developments on how it might be treated? Well, today I am joined by Dr. Graham Fedorik. He is a spinal expert currently practicing at Kapiolani Women and Children's Hospital. And we're going to be talking today about what are the latest in the treatments for scoliosis. It's a condition that you might have heard about. Sometimes it's even visible to folks. And it is something they still do a lot of screening for. In some cases, earlier intervention might help prevent troubles as people get older. So thanks for joining me today, Dr. Fedorik. Thanks for having me. So scoliosis, what exactly, how would you define it? And is it something that, you know, I remember being in grade school and they'd say, okay, we're going to do this screening, everybody bend over, and then they check to make sure you're sort of straight in alignment. Is it is it that easy to see? Are there different degrees of it? What's what's scoliosis? Yeah, so, so in its simplest terms, scoliosis refers to a curvature of the spine. And it's interesting you're talking about uh, screening in school because it's something that we do as part of the Scoliosis Research Society recommend, but it's something that a lot of uh, municipalities have moved away from. And a lot of the screening really falls on the backs of our our primary care providers, our pediatricians and family doctors, who will usually screen kids uh, when they see them for their annual checkup. And it truly is as simple as keep your legs straight, bend forward, uh, and then the doctor or whomever is doing the screening is looking for evidence of rotational differences side to side. And that rotation that we see, be it a rib hump or or one side of the lumbar spine sitting a little bit higher, typically will indicate an underlying curvature of the spine as well. We look at these pictures and we think, oh, it's a two-dimensional S curve or something like that, but there's there's really a complex three-dimensional deformity and and that's what folks see when they, they bend forward and see that rib hump on the screening. Yeah, really straightforward to catch, actually. It's, it's just a matter of catching it sort of in time. And when would this normally be screened for? You mentioned that a lot of primary care docs, I would presume, pediatricians would be the ones doing this type of screening. You know, for someone like myself, I see adults. So if it hasn't been picked up by the time they're 18, then that's it probably ought to be, be found a little bit earlier. What's the most common age where screening takes place? Yeah, if you're picking them up in your clinic, the ship has probably already sailed, unfortunately. The the best time to identify scoliosis and the time when we most typically see it uh, is right before that pre-puberty growth spurt that kids go through. Uh, and so in girls, that might be, screening might be really important around the age of 9, 10, 11, uh, and then going into the early teen years. Boys, it'll often manifest just a little bit later, uh, but again, 11 or 12 years of age. Um, through 14 or so. That's when it's, it's most important. Scoliosis is interesting. We, we don't really know what causes the vast majority of scoliosis, and we term it uh, idiopathic, which I always tell patients, this is our way of saying doctors have no idea what's going on, uh, and it's just there. Uh, so we still want to put some sort of a fancy term on it. Uh, but idiopathic scoliosis seems to get worse with growth. And so while kids are going through those growth spurts, that's when the curve really needs to be controlled uh, to prevent it from getting uh, to the magnitude that it starts to cause problems. 
It's interesting you mentioned that, that as kids are going through that growing phase, that puberty phase, it may actually exacerbate or cause that curvature to be more noticeable. So is there a time at which if you're fully grown, if you do get to the point where, you know, maybe the ship has sailed, you see me, you're 18, or maybe even in your late 20s or 30s, is there a point at which there is no going back? Is there ever a situation where it's just you can't change the curvature now and you just have to try and manage it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the point is, is a little bit of a gray area. We have relatively limited long-term studies in terms of what happens if you have a curve of a certain size. But what they tell us is that if you have a scoliosis of 45 or 50 degrees when you're all done growing, most of those curves will continue to gradually get worse over time at a rate of anywhere between half a degree to one degree per year. And that's, that's really, really slow. But when you think about that, if you have a 50-degree curve when you're, when you're 18 and you're all done growing, you know, 30 years later, you're still not very old and you're looking at an 80-degree curve, which is the magnitude when you start to have difficulties with um, respiratory function, cardiovascular function, uh, and so those big curves tend to get worse. Those are typically the ones that we have really strong evidence for fixing. If you have a curve that's less than 30 degrees, we pretty much know it's, it's very, very unlikely that that's going to continue to change substantially when you're all done growing. Unfortunately, that leaves a big gray area, curves between 30 and 50. Some of them get worse. Some of them don't. Uh, and it's really difficult to know what's going to happen. You sort of just have to cross your fingers and, and hope for the best for a lot of those kids. Now, we were talking about degrees, and if somebody mm -hmm. tries to picture this in their head, how exactly are we monitoring this? You know, 90 degrees is a right angle, so when we're talking yeah. 30 to 50 degrees, what exactly are you measuring when you're talking about degrees? Are you doing this based on an x-ray or based on uh, measuring the body externally when you see someone? So when, when pediatricians and family doctors are doing their screening exam and they're looking at the rotation uh, of the spine, there's a certain value that, that correlates to an X-ray measurement that's enough that, that we sort of care and we want to start monitoring that child more closely. But we're making all of our degree measurements on those X-rays uh, that we take in the clinic. So, you know, parents aren't going to be doing measurements at home to monitor degrees. Once you get identified as someone who may have this condition – you want a regular follow-up. You need to see a provider. You might need to do x-rays at a periodic interval and have that degree monitored. Yeah, I guess unless the, the parent's a radiologist with an x-ray machine at home, it's Let's definitely hope not. something that you'd need to see somebody else um, okay. to monitor once it's been picked up. And so when, when, once that happens, once you identify there's degrees, are, are we just talking about the, the curious part about it? As you said, you know, we're giving a, it looks like it's a two-dimensional issue, but it's actually a three-dimensional issue when we think about anatomy and what goes on in the internal organs. So are we just talking degrees if people are saying, oh, it looks like somebody, you know, Johnny bent forward and there might be scoliosis. So is it just we're looking at this variation from what should be going straight? So we're looking at a variation from the vertical aspect, or are we also looking at uh, more of a three-dimensional curvature going inwards? So scoliosis usually just refers to if, if you or I were facing one another, uh, a curvature to the side. That's what we're measuring. And most people don't have any curvature in that plane where you should be uh, perfectly straight. 
uh, for the 97 or 98% of the population without scoliosis. When you look at someone from the side, everyone does have a natural curvature to their spine. We all tend to have a little bit of kyphosis or hunching forward through our upper spine. We have a little bit of lordosis or a sway back through our lower spine. And those shapes are natural uh, and tend to balance uh, each other out. There'll be a kyphosis up above and there'll be a lordosis down below. But everything is programmed to keep your head centered over your pelvis when you're moving about the world. Scoliosis is a little different in that you've got the curvature to the side and you you can tip a little bit off to the side unless the body develops a compensatory curve. And in that case, now you have two curves. Better to get this identified when there's one, if you can, and talk about what some of the treatments are going to be. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Dr. Graham Fedorik about what are the ways that this can get fixed once it's identified and diagnosed. If it does meet that criteria for treatment, what are some of the options and how has that changed in the recent past? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Graham Fedorik from Kapiolani Women and Children's Hospital here on the line. And right now we're talking about National Scoliosis Month. So this is a curvature that might happen when children are born that if identified early could potentially require treatment. And right in the early portion of the show, we talked about what are some of the ways it can be identified, who might qualify or meet the criteria for treatment, and how often are people monitored with this. So we were talking a little bit about the fact that this is sort of a curvature to the side that is visible if somebody were to bend forward and could have some implications later on in life if not treated, particularly if it gets worse, as it might during growth spurt. What are some of the options? What are some of the old ways that it used to be treated? And then we'll get to some of the newer, exciting ways that could potentially allow for more spinal mobility, particularly for those who need to treat this condition. So 50 years ago, what did we do about scoliosis? Um, For the most part, 50 years ago, they, they sort of just left it alone. People were playing around with the idea of a brace, um, and the brace, the purpose of the brace is to try to prevent the curvature from getting worse while children are going through that large growth spurt. Uh, but there was still a lot of controversy uh, 50 years ago in terms of whether a brace was effective or not. Uh, and then if the curves did progress and they got worse, even 50 years ago, uh, we were probably still doing the same thing that we were doing just a couple of years ago and that we do now, uh, which was a spinal fusion for those large curves. The effort of that being to straighten out the spine uh, and then, then get it to fuse in that corrected position. But just to back up a little bit, the most, the most important thing for scoliosis is really that early identification and then getting started with brace treatment uh, as soon as possible because we have really strong evidence nowadays um, that bracing can, can very, very effectively decrease the likelihood of, of needing any surgery in the future. Uh, and so we really try to drill that into... Uh, our families, when we when we see kids with medium-sized curves, so 20 degrees, 25 degrees, 30 degrees, kids with scoliosis of that magnitude, they don't need surgery. Uh, and even though I love doing surgery, uh, it's it's really fun for me. I, I love my job. I always tell folks that my goal is to try to keep your child 
out of the operating room, and, and the core of that is really wearing a brace uh, while you're still growing. So with the early identification and the potential that it's caught at such an early stage that it hasn't progressed, conservative treatment with wearing braces that I would imagine they might change over time or they might be adjusted over time to keep somebody growing in a straight pattern, that would be primary treatment, more of a conservative route. And then if they that, hit the that's point... That's cornerstone of what we do. It's so important. If they hit the point where they need a brace, is this a brace that they would wear pretty much all the time or only with standing, only with sleep? What would be the general standard way somebody would need to use a brace? So the, the really strong evidence for bracing came from a multi-center, 20 different hospital study that was performed about a decade ago uh, and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which for orthopedics is pretty uncommon. Uh, we don't get many orthopedic studies uh, in, in that journal. And what it found was that the type of brace didn't really matter, but you needed to be wearing the brace at least a certain number of hours per day. Uh, and that threshold seemed to be about 13 to 14 hours. So when I see folks, I uh, typically recommend that they try to wear the brace 16 to 18 hours per day, uh, because that 14, 13, 14 hours was an average. And we're all human. We all have days when we really don't want to wear the brace or, you know, you're a teenage kid, you're going for a sleepover, you're going to hang out at the beach all day. And so if they're shooting for 16 to 18 hours over a 24-hour period, even with the days that they kind of slack off a little bit, they're probably going to be wearing the brace enough. I'm a little more aggressive maybe than some other folks with bracing, in that I will often start with a, a just nighttime brace uh, at a slightly smaller magnitude of scoliosis, just with the goal of maybe helping that kid, if not avoid a daytime brace altogether, maybe they have that daytime brace for only a year or only a year and a half instead of two or three years. Uh, my oldest is, is almost a teenager, and I think she'd be not thrilled uh, with the idea of wearing a brace uh, during the day. And so I often take that into consideration and we'll start early with the nighttime braces. And once somebody hits the point where everything's, if they go hit that growth spurt and they're growing normally, they might not need to wear it forever. This is sort of for a limited duration of time. That's, that's what I try to emphasize. Um, you know, when you're a teenager, everything, a year seems decades away. Uh, but this is a time-limited thing. The brace is only used as long as you are still growing. Uh, and once you get to the last six months or so of growth, uh, you know, the contribution to your overall height is pretty minimal. Uh, we'll often, for kids that have a relatively small curve, get the brace off a little bit early. Uh, but, yeah, this is a time-limited thing. It's only for a couple of years. It's not forever, even if it feels like it. Re really important because um, psychologically it can, be, it can be tough for kids wearing a brace. Absolutely. A year a year for a teenager might be, you know, Five, their age divided years, by yeah. how many years they're alive. For those of us yeah. who are a bit older, it doesn't seem like it's as much, but uh, it, it does go by a lot slower when you're younger, I'm certain. Now, if you do Absolutely. meet the criteria for needing to do some type of surgery, you mentioned a spinal fusion. What exactly is that? It sounds to me like, you know, parts are sort of fused together and now they don't move so well. This is true. Yeah, um, that's, that's what my partner, Dr. Burkhalter, and I were doing today. Uh, spinal fusion typically involves uh, a long incision down the middle of the back. 
Uh, we bring the muscles off to either side until we're looking at the bones that make up the spine. Uh, we place screws uh, and hooks to grab a hold of the spine at a number of different levels, free things up by taking away some bone and, and all those joints, and then put some rods to hold to hold the back in as straight a position as we can safely uh, make it go. And then we put in a bunch of bone graft, which causes all of those uh, previously independent bones to fuse together. Uh, and honestly, it's, it's, it works really, really well. We, we have decades of, of evidence demonstrating it's a safe, effective procedure. Uh, and um, the only downside, I think, uh, that we've always um, considered is that once those spinal segments are fused, they, they no longer have that ability to move independently. And for some folks, that's Perhaps not a big deal. For other folks, uh, it can be a bigger deal. Uh, and so that's our traditional treatment uh, of scoliosis surgery. And that surgery, you know, once you put in the rods, they're not coming out. They hope not. <laughs> if they're coming that's, out, something, they're coming out uh, something went something's wrong. Something's gone awry. Okay. Yeah. So they're put yeah. in. And you mentioned that, you know, if, if your child likes gymnastics, like I know uh, your children do, or if they like sports that require a lot of mobility, this could potentially limit them, not just immediately, but then further on in the future. So it is a big consideration if it is what has to be done. Okay, but if there are other alternatives, then looking into those might be might be something that you do. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. What we're going to do is take a quick break right now. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the new exciting treatments that are out there that allow more spinal mobility and why that might be the decision that helps people to be able to continue to adjust and avoid that extreme curvature, but find ways that they can stay active and enjoy healthy activities outdoors their entire lives. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, and Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio, and I have Dr. Graham Fedorik on the line, and he is currently working to help cure scoliosis, a condition that some children are unfortunately born with that may have some implications if they don't treat it, and certainly something that, if caught early, can be modified, whether it be a conservative approach, using a brace, or possibly even a surgical approach. And right before the break, we were talking about the need to consider that conservative way to adjust the spine in a minor fashion that over time could actually have serious implications. But the previous gold standard surgery, if someone absolutely needed it, was a spinal fusion, which may reduce the mobility of the spine lifelong. So luckily, there are some new treatments that are out there that help to provide the same sort of spine stability, the straight without a curvature effect, but also allow for someone to enjoy some of the activities that maybe they thought they couldn't as they got older. Now, there's a particular procedure that you've been working on called vertebral body tethering. What exactly is that? Yeah, so so vertebral body tethering, also known as VBT um, or anterior spinal modulation, it, it's a really exciting new technique that just got FDA approval late last summer. Folks have been doing research on this at a couple of select centers uh, for about a decade now, even a little bit longer in a few spots, but it it was finally approved by the FDA and then rolled out more broadly over the next six months. 
What VBT tries to do is we try to apply asymmetric force to the spine surgically to allow it to grow into a straighter position. So we're, we're modifying the scoliosis, trying to help the child grow out of the scoliosis. Um, but at the end of the day, those spinal segments won't be fused, uh, and they will still have, hopefully, normal or more normal motion than they would with a spine fusion. We've been doing this in the lower extremities in particular for decades. Uh, if a child comes into my office and they're severely knock-kneed or bow-legged, it's a relatively straightforward thing as long as their growth plates are still open uh, to insert a plate and a couple of screws on one side of the growth plate. And over the course of 12 to 18 months, the leg will, in most cases, grow relatively straight. You take the plates out and, uh, and you're good to go. We've been looking for a way to do this in the spine for quite some time. Uh, and it seems that now uh, it's finally more widely available, and it's it's really, really exciting stuff. Now, in a similar way that you describe it for the legs, you know, you would put in a plate and you might, is the idea that you would you would encourage the growth of the segment that is most affected by the curvature faster than the growth of the segment that is sort of at the other end of that curvature? Yeah, bones. Bones in children grow in response to the stresses that are put upon them, and they've, they've shown experimentally and then clinically numerous times that if you put a bone under tension, it will grow faster, and if you put a bone under compression, it will grow more slowly. So with vertebral body tethering, we place screws on one side of the spine, and we connect those screws uh, with a synthetic cord and then tension the heck out of it in order to apply compression on the long side of the spine and apply attention to the concave side. So at the time of surgery, we actually get pretty remarkable uh, correction of the scoliosis, but that's not a permanent effect unless the, the body actually responds to those forces and grows straighter. And that's why we only uh, are approved to do this surgery in kids who still have a sufficient amount of growth remaining. It's not approved for folks who are skeletally mature uh, and then, and then just want this to treat their scoliosis. This is we're trying to alter the growth of the of the vertebral bodies themselves and help the kids actually grow out of their scoliosis. The cord itself is synthetic. The assumption is that at some point in time it will eventually break, uh, and the hope is that when that occurs, uh, the individual has, has grown out of their deformity. And does it it's need cool. to be removed I'm really at that point? About this new procedure. Pardon in me. In that situation, would you remove the, just like you would the apparatus in the lower extremity, the plate or the screws, would you remove it, remove the cord once the person had their scoliosis resolve? So when we use the plates in the lower extremity, um, if the child still has growth remaining, we definitely remove them because we don't want to turn somebody who is knock-kneed into someone who's bow-legged. But if they're all done growing, their growth plates have closed, we, we certainly give them the option of leaving the plates in. It's the same idea in the spine. If they are all done growing, then, then there's no need to take anything out. It, it's another surgery, and we would try to avoid that, uh, so we would just leave everything in. It sounds like it sort of revolutionized the idea of treating scoliosis. You went from, you know, conservative treatment, and if somebody unfortunately has a curvature that's great enough, spinal fusion with rigid immobilization, to now you have this ability to really change the trajectory of how someone's spine will grow to help them to maintain the mobility that 
we all want to have, you know, and, and be able to bend down and do things and, and live their life and participate in sports or fun activities. So it really, it sounds like it's, it's revolutionary. Yeah, I think it's really important to point out, though, that spinal fusion is still an excellent procedure. There's, there's different parts of the spine, and, and different parts of the spine are, are more or less important for our mobility. We have really good evidence that if someone has what we call a selective thoracic fusion, where their spinal fusion stops um, at, say, the T12 level, which is the last level where there's a rib coming off of it, those folks have tremendous motion, and they get back to doing all sorts of things. It's as we extend the fusion further and further into the lumbar or the lower part of the spine that the cost of fusing each level really goes up. Uh, And so if I were to see somebody in clinic with scoliosis and they had uh, a thoracic deformity, I think it's a really complicated discussion in terms of whether I would recommend a fusion or a tether. Uh, folks need to understand that there's different reoperation rates between these two procedures. We don't have decades of follow-up of tethers like we do for spine fusions. Whereas if someone comes in with a lumbar curvature or a curve that's at the junction of the thoracic and lumbar spines, those folks lose a ton of motion when they're fused. Uh, and for me, I, I would perhaps try to urge them more towards a tether uh, because you really want to do everything that you can to preserve those motion segments. But a fusion is still a great procedure. Uh, it's really a, an individual decision and, and oftentimes a long discussion uh, with uh, kids and, uh, and with their families. Well, and it, it sounds like it's getting towards what what I think has been such an interesting evolution of medicine, where it really isn't one size fits all. You know, it's let's take a look at your personal habits. Let's take a look at what you do, where the curvature might be, whether or not the activities that you enjoy are going to be hampered by whichever procedure that you choose. And if it is, unfortunately, in that lower lumbar segment, what are the implications? So, you know, that personalized approach is where I think definitely having the capacity for kids to have these procedures done locally with the support of their family and the support of everyone around them really makes a difference. So having that ability to do that right here in the islands is is an amazing way that we can help provide technology to families that otherwise might have had to travel to go somewhere else for some of these new types of procedures. What else do you think is on the horizon? Are there other treatments that you can envision that we might come up with that could also allow for some of the same spinal stability without losing the flexibility, but help to prevent the curvature from worsening? Anything else on the horizon yeah. out there? So the FDA also approved another new device called the Apisex, which uh, the advantage of it over a tether is that it's really, really straightforward or much more straightforward to, to place it surgically. Um, the disadvantage seems to be that I'm not quite sure that the motion after it's been placed is going to be the same. Uh, Dr. Burkhalter, my partner, and I, we were meeting with the company uh, just last week uh, that provides um, the Apifix uh, device, trying to consider where exactly it fits in our practice. It's just it's really exciting that, you know, we've waited for decades for something other than a spine fusion. And then in the course of a year, we've now got two new options that we can talk about um, with families, both apifix and vertebral body tethering. I think for some folks, uh, that might be the right decision. For some folks, tethering is the right decision. For some folks, uh, a spine fusion is the right decision. It's just neat that we have, we have options now uh, and people don't have a one-size-fits-all uh, approach. My, my daughters are both 
gymnasts. That's a huge part of their life. Uh, and so if they were to develop scoliosis in the next couple of years, I would probably be leaning towards a tether. But that certainly does not mean that that's the right move for every family and, and for every child. Well, and I'm, I'm just pleased to know that there, like you said, there are some options, some changes that have occurred in the medical world. And it, it seems like once there's one option, now we have two. And who knows what could happen around the corner? Maybe there's even some further technologies that can be developed to help address this really serious issue. I want to thank you, Dr. Graham Fedoric, for being on The Body Show and sharing your expertise with us today. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Dr. Graham Fedoric is a practicing surgeon at Kapiolani Hospital, part of the Hawaii Pacific Health Network. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week when we talk about more health topics to keep everybody doing well as best as they can, living and enjoying life and enjoying good health. That's every Monday right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then. Woo!